Hey, everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I am your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, we have a wrap-up of Tuesday's elections. We look not just at the one here at home, but also at two pivotal races across the country. First, joining us to discuss the results here in Washington is Chair of the King County Democrats, Shasti Conrad. Then we are joined by the head of Roanoke Indivisible, Yvonne Wallace-Fuentes, to discuss the historic wins for Democrats up and down the ballot in Virginia. And we talk with the Chair of Indivisible Kentucky, Sharon Flack about the impact of Democrat Andy Bashir winning the governorship in a very red state. That is all ahead, so stay with us. Well, it's only fitting that because we did a pre-election special that we do a post one as well. And so to go over some local, statewide, and even national results, we will kick things off with our friend Shasti Conrad. She is the chair of the King County Democrats. Hey, Shasti. Hi, Stefan. How are you? You know, I'm all right. Um, <laughs> before we got started here, we were talking about how uh, yesterday's election results kind of a mixed bag, right? Yeah, I know. I was just I, I was thinking about, like, did I have anything, you know, really interesting or even consoling to say? And hmm. honestly, I just keep being like, wow, like I was just going through. We had, um, you know, uh, the next batch of results come through. Uh, just a little bit ago. And, you know, it's such it's such a mixed bag. That's the best phrase that I can um, find to describe the results. Um, that's how I felt last night. And and even with this batch, um, it hasn't it hasn't made things much clearer. <laughs> no, it hasn't. I took a look at them myself. And I should mention that we are recording at 4.30 p.m. Pacific time on Wednesday. And the, yeah, the latest uh, bunch of, uh, you know, uh, results just dropped. And, and it doesn't really make the picture much clearer. But let's just go dive into a couple of the the marquee races here, because I do want to get your thoughts. Um, we'll start with the Seattle City Council race. Uh, I think a lot of people were understandably very nervous about the influence of corporate money, specifically Amazon's. Uh, they dropped $1.5 million into the race. And uh, as of the latest count, two Amazon-backed candidates were definitively up. Uh, Alex Peterson is ahead of Sean Scott. Egan Ryan is ahead of incumbent Shama Swant. Uh, there's another race between Amazon backed Jim Poogle versus Andrew J. Lewis. That one is a dead heat. How are you interpreting all of this? You know, as I saw those results coming in last night as well, I thought, you know, I can see how both both sides are are gonna try to spin this mm-hmm. i don't think I, again I, I don't think it's definitive i and i think the sort of amazon versus you know socialist progressive i think that's it's not nuanced enough um and you know i mean i i, I would say i don't think amazon can run away fe- doing victory laps feeling like they you know, really um, made the the impact that they clearly wanted to by spending millions of dollars to try to, I mean, honestly, to try to buy the buy Seattle. Um, you know, I, I I am disappointed to see that the numbers weren't at you know as high across the board for you know a number of the more progressive candidates um, that we we had endorsed out of King County Democrats. But I I really I you know. What I keep coming to, which I mean, still I'm sort of grappling with what all of this means, but I think nothing, no money, no, no, nothing like all the endorsements in the world can't take away from having a really vibrant candidate um, and having someone who 
organizes and knocks on doors and meets people. And I think that that's, I mean, you know, that's, that's a lot of what's, what's happening when we see the, the, the differences between the, you know, the folks who, um, you know, were backed by like the, the chamber backed candidates um, and versus the more progressive candidates. Um, and I also think that it tells a story about what the dynamics are within the city too, because I think you have to look at each district and look at the demographics within each district and who has who's ended up in those districts that also help to tell the story as to why certain folks are up and that it's not just a straight Amazon versus progressive story. Yeah, I mean, that's the narrative. And I think everybody wants to sort of paint it within those lines. But as you say, you know, Seattle's an extremely diverse city. And, you know, I'll just point out what I think while people were looking for a repudiation, a clean repudiation of Amazon, there's still going to be a progressive majority on the council, right? And do you see this election changing the way that the council is going to govern? Because obviously, that's what Amazon was after. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a city council that is not going to always be in lockstep with one another. I think you're going to have to, you're going to see probably more moderate proposals getting passed because they're going to have to work within, you know, along a spectrum of viewpoints and perspectives and supporters, in all honesty. Um so I think, you know, sometimes that actually does make for a better government um, because you have to actually like work through problems. You have to deal with one another. Um, you know, I mean, I I obviously would always prefer to have, um, you know, pe- people on a more, more progressive end of things. Sure. But, um, you know, I, I could see that this this it may not be the, the sort of impending doom that we've all kind of. <laughs> Feared, right? That yeah. that if we had some of these folks get through, that maybe it would undo the entire city. Well, you know, I do want to ask you about the Sawant race um, because that was the one that I think people were really keeping an eye on. Um, if anybody was going to, you know, determine this race to be a referendum on progressivism, they were looking to that race. I'm wondering how you interpret uh, Shama Sawant potentially being unseated. It's not definitive yet, but it's looking pretty clear at this point. Yes, I think you know she's had a challenging run for her entire time on city council, and I think you know where it, it where I started to really be concerned was as she lost labor support, um, and like her an inability to be able to you know get things done and 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 to be able to. Um, you know, sometimes work with colleagues and, and things like that. I think that that's really difficult. I also think you can't deny um, the race and gender politics that that play into how people talk about Shama. Um, and I mean, it's 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 challenging for me as chair of King County Democrats because we actually did not endorse in that race because the two people that we did endorse um, in the primary were Zach DeWolf and Amy Wynn, who I think were, you know, the sort of more, um, I don't know what you would, like the progressive Democrat. Um, and, you know, I think they kind of canceled each other out. Um, Shama did not seek our endorsement. And then, you know, um, we didn't, we decided not to endorse Egan. So I, I think that it's, it's definitely a sign that, um, you know, you have to be able to get things done and you have to be able to work with people. and. Um, you know, Egan, 
Egan was able to capitalize on a lot of the negative press um, and and negative and negative stereotypes that have been pinned to pinned to Shama. Yeah. And I mean, I think what we're kind of hinting at here is that this may have more to do with Sawant herself than it is a referendum on progressivism in the city. Um, you know, and you brought up race and gender politics. And I'd like to talk about R88. Uh, that was the measure that would have ratified affirmative action in Washington. And that looks like it's going to be rejected, um, although it's narrowed slightly uh, at the last count. But what are your thoughts here? Um, how much do we think racial attitudes and maybe even racism were a factor here? Yes. I mean, you know, that was another sort of um, disappointment. And, and, you know, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm naive, but I, I was not expecting for it to be, I thought it would be close, but I thought that we would, that we would be up. So did um, I. Yeah. You know, so it, it, it caught me off guard a little bit. And I, and I think, um, I think there's two major factors. I, I think one is the is racism. And I think we can see that those dynamics are absolutely playing out um, in our region. And you can see that in, you know, races um, across the county from South King County to East County. Um, and I think that the second point is is voter confusion, yeah. which was the intent <laughs> of those who I think who wanted to, um, you know, to get rid of I-1000. And um and, and, you know, we, we went from wanting to reject referendum 88 because we didn't want it to get onto the ballot. And then we, when it got onto the ballot, we wanted to approve it. There were a number of stories um, that like through the ballot or the signature collection phase to get it onto the ballot that there were, you know, tricks and people were being lied to about what they were actually signing. Um, and I think there was a lot of really kind of nasty um, racial stereotypes that were played within communities of color. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. When you look at the funding for um, to vote uh, to reject referendum eighty eight, a lot of it came from AAPI groups. And um, for those who may not know, know what are AAPI groups? Asian American Pacific Islander. Thank you. Okay. So yeah, so like Chinese, it was a a, a lot of money came from the Chinese American communities, um, and. Uh, and which was and then was pitted against, you know, sort of black and Latinx um, communities. And I and I think that that is like there's just this fear. And when you're voting from fear and you're making decisions from fear, that is you're often going to end up with these types of results where, um, you know, what misunderstandings, not fully realizing that there's a way for, you know, a rising tide to lift all boats. Um, that I think is why we ended up with the results that we have. Um, and it's, it's, it's very disappointing. It is. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's unfortunate because, and we talked about this on last week's show, but there's so much more that it would have done and it would had to do with so much more than racial discrimination. Um, I, mm-hmm. I guess it's cold comfort, uh, but you and I both live in King County and looking at the results from King County, uh, R88, but it was ahead by, by a, a large margin in King County. And so, uh, you know, yeah, I did see a tweet last night that someone put out that said, um, you know, that that this election just proved how, you know, the, the, the distance between King County and the rest of the state is getting wider. Um, and I and, and that is true. I mean, I, you know, as I looked at the projections of for both nine for both 88 and for 976, um, you know, King County, um, you know, voted and you, then you would see the opposite color 
for the basically the rest of the entire state, including for 976, um, Pierce County voted um, to approve 976 two to one versus King County overwhelmingly vote uh, voting to um, no on 976. Yeah, there's a big gap there. Uh, even yeah. when you factor in Tacoma, uh, there's still much mm-hmm. there's still so much of, of Pierce County that's that's very rural. And so, yeah, we do see a big cleavage of attitudes there. And I, I don't really want to talk about 976, um, <laughs> but we, we should. Uh, so that was the car tab initiative, uh, and that is most likely going to pass. Uh, so just, you know, talk, talk about some of the potential fallout from this. Yeah, 976 was one that um, I think we all were very, very worried because it, it's going to. I mean, the thing that was so frustrating for me is I'm like, we vote, we have voted so many times to fund transportation in King County. Like we consistently say we get it. Like we want to fund these projects. We want to be more environmentally conscious. We are sick of the traffic. Right. We understand the infrastructure pieces. Um, and, and to have that, to have that go the way that it is, again, it just, it shows that distance. And I think, um, it's, it's just, it's really, it was really frustrating to see Tim Iman gloating last night. <laughs> <laughs> to, to say the least. Yeah. It's, it, anytime Tim Iman is smiling, I think a lot of the rest of us are frowning. Um, there are going to be court challenges to this for sure. So, you know, as they say, watch this space. You know, I also want to get your thoughts on Gramai Zahile uh, defeating longtime King County Council incumbent Larry Gossett. Um, it was pretty decisive, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, it really speaks to, um, you know, Gurmai's ability to organize um, that district. And, you know, he spent the better part of this last year um, really going door to door, meeting his neighbors. Um, and he's young. He's compelling. Um, he has a really, you know, he's a really close connection. He's um, a son of Ethiopian immigrants, grew up, went to Garfield High School. Um, and, you know, he ran a very positive campaign. He consistently was um, very respectful of, you know, Councilman um, Gossett and, you know, said that he showed his respect and said, you know, look, um, I just think that it's, you know, that it's time and here's what I'm presenting and I will not say anything negative about him. And, you know, I think that he won people over with his positivity and yeah. with his compassion and, um you know, he's a really exciting, exciting candidate, and I'm excited to see what he does um, now that he's going to be on King County Council. Yeah, yeah. Some people have said that he uh, represents kind of a new face, a new generation of leadership on the council. Do you agree with that? Yes, 100 percent. I think, you know, I mean, to be perfectly honest, you know, a lot of times King County Council has been sort of referred to as like, well, that's where people go when it's like, you know, they kind of want to have a have a have a nice elected role and and you know they they there's not always a lot of push to get a lot of things done and I think that Gurmai is going to really change that energy on that council um much like Bob Ferguson did years and years ago um mm. when he was on the council I think that we're going to see the council be involved in a lot more um, issues and a lot more projects. And I think that's a good thing because, you know, as we talked about, um, you know, the housing and homelessness crisis heading into this election and how that was playing out, what I have found um, is that consistently all of the data, all the reports say that Seattle cannot solve it alone. It has to be a countywide initiative. And I think that 
you know, Gurmai is going to bring some more energy to really, really try to tackle those types of um, large scale um, systemic issues. Yeah, it's going to be exciting to see what he does for sure. Are there any other races uh, that you would like to weigh in on? Yes. Well, I mean, so, you know, us at King County Democrats, we, um, you know, Seattle is, you know, takes up a lot of airtime sure. and is definitely the anchor city. But I always like to remind folks that there are, you know, 39 cities in the county and, you know, Seattle is just one of them. So we spent a lot, we spent a lot of our energy really trying to, to um, support races in SeaTac and uh, in South King County and then also in East King County. Um, those races, SeaTac um, is, it was very close. Um, we had a slate of four really incredible candidates, um, two Ethiopian immigrants, one Somali immigrant, and then a, um, incredible labor organizer and small business owner. And, um, you know, it, we, we really, really were hopeful that they were going to be able to win to, um, you know, reflect the city a lot better than it is currently. And it's looking like as of right now, um, all four are behind, Two out of the four are um, very, very close. Um, one's separated by 60, 60 votes and another is separated by, I think, a little um, under over around 100. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I mean, you know, these races remind me um, that every single vote counts. You That's know? right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. And then the other one that I think you are very um, familiar with that is a really happy, exciting, good gem of a race was that out in Black Diamond, um, out in the fifth legislative district, um, where it's a town of, I think not even 5,000 people. Very small, yeah. yeah. Very, very small out kind of towards the mountains. Um, a really energetic, exciting, passionate young woman named Christiana De Leon took on, um, a, uh, an, an incumbent who has ties to, um, some white nationalist groups. She won, she won her race. And, you know, I, I just it just goes to show you that, you know, it, it really matters standing up for what you believe in and getting out there and talking to your neighbors and, and, and fighting, fighting for our values. And so that of a, of a mixed bag of a night mm. that that one really um, get, made me happy and gave me some joy. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we started out by saying we weren't sure if we were going to be able to say anything consoling. But, uh, yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. And I think that's a perfect place to leave it. Shasti Conrad is chair of the King County Democrats. Shasti, as always, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Stephen. This was great. Well, the news was much clearer and brighter in Virginia, where Democrats took control of both the state Senate and the House of Delegates for the first time in 26 years. And joining us to talk about this is our friend Yvonne Wallace-Fuentes. She is founder and one of the leaders of Indivisible Roanoke. Yvonne, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me tonight. I assume that the mood is pretty cheerful in Virginia today. I would say the mood is jubilant. Uh, there, you know, people have been working on this for uh, so many, many years, and there have been so many frustrations. Uh, in especially in the last few years, 2017, we came so very, very close, and so today, um, really, people were walking around in a new world, and it's um, it, it's wonderful to see. Well, it's a great new world, and I want to discuss a little bit of the ramifications of that with you. Um, but I will just ask you, because you know Tuesday night was such a rout by Democrats up and down the ballot, were there any surprises for you, any races in particular that you were watching, ones that stood out for you? 
Right. Um, so, yeah, so uh, I was looking for a couple of things, mostly to make sure or to see how a lot of the uh, first year uh, freshman legislators uh, were able to keep their their seats. And for the most part, they were able to keep all of their seats, which was spectacular. Uh, and that, that wasn't necessarily a given. Right. Many right. of these legislators weren't given an opportunity to advance any legislation uh, because the Republicans who controlled uh, the, the House of Delegates uh, in, made it a point of honor to ensure that they couldn't carry any bills so that it would be easier to pick them off. And so the fact that that, that, that wall held was uh, was wonderful and probably one of the very first things that I was looking at. In terms of sort of like a heartbreaker, uh, we really have to look at the race between Kirk Cox and um, Sheila Bynum-Coleman. And, and she's just a spectacular, a spectacular voice. And I was really hoping that with a, a fairer map that she would uh, – come a, a little closer. So that, that to me was, was the race that I was watching closely. Um, and also I was a little surprised that we came uh, as short as we did in the Senate. There was some thinking uh, going in that we would probably um, get uh, further along in the Senate than in the House of Delegates. And uh, a few of those races came through as squeakers and, and they didn't fall our way. And, and that was that was unfortunate. But, you know, at this point, like we're just sort of picking at the edges because the second that uh, that uh, map shifted uh, last night, you know, somewhere between 9 and 10 p.m. It's, um, you know, you could just feel everybody's emotion. It was it was a fantastic night. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we watched from this coast um, and we actually I was uh, brought of mind. You mentioned the fact that the Senate was a, a much slimmer majority. That's kind of how it's shaken out here in Washington. But the good news is that you can absolutely get things done that way. Uh, and I know that you're anticipating getting a lot of great things done in Virginia. We'll talk about that in just a second. I should also mention for listeners that uh, Shelley Simmons, who lost her race by drawing a straw. She was the one That's that, right. the, yeah, she actually won her seat last night. That was amazing. And, you know, I really think it's important to, to highlight the Simmons race because she won. I mean, last time it was essentially a tie. That's why it had to go um, to a, a game of chance. Uh, and that, that game of chance, literally when they picked that name out of a hat, that determined the course for the entire session because the yeah. Republicans were then able to rule with an iron hand with a the majority. They, they essentially established um, a set of rules that – uh, suggested they had won with an overwhelming majority instead of literally by a game of chance. Yeah, they treated it like a mandate, a didn't they? It was, it was crazy. And, I mean, don't get me started when you actually <laughs> learned about some of the particular um, irregularities in that race and the split ballot and, you know, whatever. But what was great about watching this um, uh, 2019 version of that race is that she didn't come just within like, you know, one or two votes. Like she beat him with a resounding margin. And I think that really speaks for uh, the frustration that a lot of people were feeling. And, uh, you know, Virginia, we vote every year. Uh, and for a long time, we thought that was a terrible thing. But now we realize that one of the uh, bright sides, one of the silver linings to that is that we never demobilize. And right. this on an off, off year election, when there wasn't a national candidate, when there wasn't even a state level or Commonwealth level candidate, people were going out and we were seeing uh, uh, returns and um, levels like we saw in 2017. I mean, that speaks to the fact that people really, really wanted to send a message. Yeah. Our, uh, the leader of our Democratic Party here in Washington, Tina Podolodowski, likes to say there is no such thing as an off-year election. And certainly, uh, Virginia, we can learn a lot from watching uh, you guys at work. Mm -hmm. um, I want to talk about the role of Trump 
in this. Uh, I've seen some exit polling interviews where people talked about wanting to send a message to Trump. Do you have that sense in talking to people about this election? Absolutely. Um, I know that when I talk to people, uh, that's certainly one of the things, uh, especially, you know, one would have thought that, you know, in, in the whole laundry list of horribleness, right, that, you know, the kids in cages, uh, the, the the racist dog whistles that, you know, things would have changed. But especially um, for me, what I've seen here in Virginia, I think the needle jumped the most with um, the disastrous decision to abandon our allies in Syria. Mm. Uh, and when, when uh, a lot of people who I think were willing to support a lot of the other ugliness in, in um, the ultimate game to ensure that they have control of the courts were forced to recognize that this um, complete uh, abdication of the United States' role in foreign policy was not worth it. And so that's when you started to see even some people here who before I didn't think were uh, as engaged in uh, some of our national politics really start paying uh, a little bit more attention. So I would definitely say that what you're seeing here is um, in many ways uh, the nationalizing of the race. I was uh, traveling to the Smokies last weekend and here in Southwest Virginia, which is a a very, very red part of the state, uh, for some local races, you were seeing signs where candidates were identifying themselves as Trump Republicans. So it's happening on both sides, right? Uh, But as it happens, there are more people in Virginia, uh, overwhelming majorities in Virginia who are more upset about that and who were uh, willing to go out and make sure that that their feelings were hurt. And then uh, a piece that I read in the New York Times talked about people also wanting to send a message about the GOP's lack of response to the mass shooting in Virginia Beach. Was that something that you heard from people? Absolutely. It was it was a combination of a couple things. So it was not only the tragedy in Virginia Beach, which, quite frankly, um, here in Virginia, we see as part of a longer story that uh, also includes Virginia Tech. Right. And a lot of the people who've been working on uh, gun violence issues uh, really revved up and and started their activism with Virginia Tech. So uh, Virginia Beach was just um, another terrible milestone along that particular journey. But it was not just that tragedy. It was also the Republican response to that with the special session that we had in the summer. So a special session was called to try to address some of these issues, which are overwhelmingly supported by the majority of uh, Virginians. Yeah. Uh, And what the Republicans did is they shut it down after like 30 minutes. And so we had people here in Roanoke uh, who who got on a bus and and went on that bus to Richmond. And it's not a short drive, right? And Mm. then to get to Richmond and to realize that the Republicans were going to shut it down without even allowing uh, any debate on any of the responsible legislation that was being proposed. Uh, and that the entire special session was going to be just a fraction of the time that they spent on the bus, like that was enraging. Well, like you say, this is more nationalizing of the race because, of course, we see these issues showing up as national issues as well. Um, and then another thing that I wanted to get your thoughts on, uh, James Homan in The Washington Post noted the shifting in the suburbs uh, away from the GOP. This is happening right. nationwide uh, in a lot of red and purple states. Are you seeing evidence of that where you live in Virginia? I'm not necessarily just in Roanoke, but across the state. Right. Absolutely. Uh, We're seeing it most in, of course, northern Virginia. So for your listeners uh, who aren't familiar with um, how Virginia works, 
there is just a lot, a lot of population density in the suburbs around Washington, D.C. Then there are also important suburbs around uh, Richmond that we saw uh, trending blue in really significant ways. So it's not just about uh, the Nova area, right? It is, I think, um, at least here what we're seeing in the Commonwealth, it is a more general uh, trend in all of the suburbs. And I think a lot of it actually has to do with women in the suburbs, right? And this really shouldn't surprise us. I mean, we've spent generations talking about soccer moms and security moms. I mean, like there's always been this notion that there's this uh, particular group of the electorate, uh, mostly middle class to professional women that might be up to grabs and that may actually uh, be more independently minded than some of the other groups that had already sort of raised their partisan flags. And I think what you're seeing now is that a lot of the um, uh, behavior that gets uh, valorized by the current administration has completely turned them off. Um, Mm. And I think you're going to see more of this, especially when it comes to reproductive justice issues. Uh, Again, uh, uh, the idea that um, we can go back to a time when hospitals have to have wards uh, just to take care of women who are uh, there for illegal abortions. Like once that becomes uh, something that women have to think about, I think you're going to see this uh, switch in the suburbs become even more solidified. And then uh, just looking at larger trends, do you feel like Virginia is turning blue maybe for good? I mean, Obama was the first uh, Democratic candidate to uh, have Virginia go for him in quite some time, but it's been trending in that direction. Are are you seeing a continuation of that? I am. And, you know, I think one of the ways that it's hard to judge uh, exactly where the majority of the Commonwealth may, may, may stand is that we look at the past 10 years and, and we use that electoral data to try to suggest where, where things might be going in the future. Right. What we have to remember is that that entire um, 10 years was um, uh, created by a gerrymandered map by Gillespie in 2010 when the Republicans took control of um, the House of Delegates. So one of the things that that has happened, I think, is that uh, that gerrymandered map, uh, which was just recently declared unconstitutional, um, was uh, very effectively masking this, uh, in my opinion, decisive switch uh, and turned towards more Democratic voters. I mean, I think generally, nationally, if you take a look at the electorate, there are more Democratic voters. It's just that Democratic voters don't always vote, either because they are suppressed or because of other obstacles, right? So I think that's a, a national trend. But here in Virginia in particular, I think you have seen a decisive switch to um, Democratic voters. A lot of it was masked by this gerrymandered map, now that that map has been um, addressed and corrected, and now that um, especially African-American voters aren't being forced into uh, democratic sinks uh, to ensure that the areas around them are safe, uh, conservative, um, leaning, uh, majority white districts, I think you're going to see that the reality of the majority of Virginia's political uh, leanings will become more apparent. And I do believe that that means that Virginia is no longer a purple state. Virginia is a blue state. I believe that Virginia will be a blue state going forward. Well, you know, what's interesting is I hear the same thing from indivisible leaders, regional leaders across the country who are saying that if it weren't for, you know, gerrymandering and voter suppression and things like that uh, in places like Florida, Georgia, even Texas, North Carolina, Arizona, that those states are already effectively blue. So it's it's definitely a trend that seems to be happening nationwide. Um, I want to switch over and talk about 
all of the great things that uh, the state legislature is going to get to do now with Democratic majorities I'm in so both excited. houses and a, and a Democratic governor. And I know you want to talk about it, too. So um, so tell us some of those things. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, there are so many things on uh, the agenda that I think um, will create a really momentous uh, legislative session in Richmond. And we're very excited. Let's start with the ERA. Yeah. So the ERA, uh, the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, Virginia, I now believe, will be the state that is necessary to ratify that into our Constitution. And um, there is nothing that um, uh, makes me any any happier than that, especially when you think about the kinds of mobilization uh, that the resistance of the Capitol are after the election of Trump uh, has really focused on, in part because it's led by midlife women, right? Like these are the women who are leading the resistance. And so the ERA really speaks to them. So yeah. uh, the ERA, uh, ratifying the ERA, uh, and then being the state that makes that uh, part of our constitution, the law for everybody that will protect my daughters and granddaughters and great-granddaughters going forward, there is nothing more exciting to me. You just can't overstate the importance of that, yeah. I, don't, I really don't think you can. I mean, not only practically, but also as a statement of first principle, right, that uh, women uh, deserve to be protected. Uh, and um, women deserve to be equal citizens is actually not that hard. Right. Um, but then right after that, uh, we're looking at uh, a, a serious and responsible attempt to address uh, gun violence and uh, the ways that uh, gun violence have ripped apart our, our communities. That's going to be uh, immediate. There's going to be uh, some important work to be done on uh, climate justice. Um, there's going to be some important work to be done on uh, public utilities. Uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia has a, uh, a very strong uh, political presence uh, that is played by its uh, public utilities, not always for the public good. So that, that can now uh, finally be addressed. Virginia is currently a, uh, a right-to-work state, which uh, I tend to consider like a right-to-work for very little and with very few rights. And so now finally... Uh, we can address some of these um, imbalances in the law that have this that have made it harder for workers to organize and and to uh, band together to make the conditions of their life uh, better. So, does that mean that we're going to get to, you know, the Valhalla of a um, uh, a, a, a livable minimum wage, whether that's 15 or something else? You know, that's what we're shooting for. So, uh, it's really an entire. Um, uh, laundry list. It's an agenda. It's a, it's, a, it's a Christmas list of things that people have been working on that we know are resoundingly popular, actually, with the people of Virginia that have been stymied again and again by the Republicans at the House of Delegates, who often wouldn't even let these things come up for a vote. So the ERA uh, last uh, session didn't even get out of committee because they were certain that they had the votes to pass it. And so they wouldn't even let it come out of committee. Mm. And that's why they shut down the special session on, on gun violence. Right. So I, I can't guarantee that all of these things will pass, but what I can absolutely assure you is that we're going to make sure that they at least get out of committee so that people can debate them and discuss them because that's what people in Virginia want. That's how we make a better Commonwealth for all of us. Well, I can tell you from our experience here in Washington, uh, having had uh, a Democratic majority in both chambers along with a Democratic governor, um, it is heartening, it is encouraging, it is life-affirming how much can get done. So uh, I I wish you the same experience that we have had here and more. Um, and I'll just close by asking um, what you feel like last night's election may indicate for 2020 and the 2020 election. 
Oh, I feel very good. I feel very, very good. Um, you know, uh, I, I think back on 2017 when Virginia was able to uh, gain as many seats in the House of Delegates in uh, 2017, I really believe it sparked uh, the beginning of what then became the blue wave at the federal level, right? Because momentum and narrative really mattered. Absolutely. And so the stories we're getting out of Virginia, but also the stories we're getting out of Kentucky, right? The stories we're getting out of Pennsylvania, right? Places where we never imagined we would get these kinds of stories. They are important, not just for the people who live in those places, but they are important because they set the narrative and they set the momentum and they remind us over and over again that politics is an ever-shifting landscape. And it is a it is a landscape landscape of possibility, right? Yeah. So yeah, we can choose to sit around and uh, uh, bewail a poll that was taken like two months ago about where the electorate may be concerning like, you know, progressive agenda items and who can actually beat Trump and who can't. But the thing to remember is like, we make that landscape and the world shifted last night. And that's what Virginia and Kentucky and all of these other races have really created. And so that's the narrative that we have set. And that's the narrative that we're going to build on. And I really am quite optimistic about 2020. I believe 2020 is the year that we um, resoundingly uh, take our republic and and protect it from some very dangerous people and trends. I am going to take what you just said and put it on a loop on my phone. So whenever I'm feeling doubt, whenever I'm feeling down, I'm just going to listen to that. Yvonne, you're awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. This was wonderful. And good luck back there on uh, that wild west coast. Yvonne Wallace-Fuentes is the founder and one of the leaders of Indivisible Roanoke. And finally this week, we turn our attention to Kentucky. So at the time we recorded this piece, it looked as if Democrat Andy Bashir's defeat of Matt Bevan was certain. But now it is looking like there's going to be a challenge. But I did want listeners to get a bit of a view from the ground. So I would like you to hear our discussion with Sharon Fleck. She is the chair with Indivisible Kentucky, and she was a field organizer for the Bashir campaign. I started by asking her if people were surprised in Kentucky by what looked like a victory by Bashir. Well, I can say that uh, the work that we've done, uh, uh, we were not surprised. We knew that it was going to be a tight race, but the work that uh, the um, Boots on the Ground has done um, over since July really, um, really affected this race. Well, you've been out there a lot personally, right? You've canvassed a ton. Yes, yes, over 8,000 doors. That is astonishing. Um, so give us a sense of what you heard when you were out canvassing uh, about this race. When, when you would talk to people, what was your general sense uh, when you were going door to door? Most people were um, that pay attention uh, were concerned at where we're going, uh, not just at the local level, but at the national level. And there is a, a lot of... Um, people that have become more aware over the, the past several years since Bevan uh, took office um, about uh, Alec and the Koch brothers and uh, dark money in politics. So that actually came up as subject matter when you were out canvassing? It did. Interesting. So that means people were really very aware of uh, politics at the, uh, at the national level in a way that they probably hadn't been previous to Trump. And, you know, speaking of Trump, he did pay a visit to Kentucky uh, in support of Bevan. What do you feel like his impact was on this race? Well, I, I think it, uh, it motivated people on both sides to get out and vote. And, uh, uh, but even the Bevan supporters uh, 
uh, or the non-Bevin supporters uh, still voted for the Republicans on the down ballot. Hmm. So not a lot of shift in that direction. But I'm wondering about impeachment, too. Did impeachment come up at all? And do you feel that impeachment played a role in last night's election? I don't believe that it played a role overall. I I believe that uh, they were trying to make it an issue that the Trump supporters could uh, would make them vote for Bevin. And and when I talk about the the Trump effect uh, in him coming here, I believe that that was the the role that they were trying to uh, play. Well, so the national narrative is that if something like this can happen in a red state like Kentucky, that the momentum is on the Democrat side for 2020. Um, Do you agree with that narrative? I will be cautiously optimistic about that narrative moving forward. Um, Again, I think that um, having conversations with people um, face to face, uh, direct voter contact is definitely um, what needs to be done here. Uh, We have not had a ground game um, in Kentucky for probably decades, you know, of any consequence. And this was a, you know, a statewide effort. Well, speaking of statewide efforts, I know that Mitch McConnell was watching last night's results probably very closely. Uh, He, of course, is (laughs) up in 2020. Do you get a sense that he's nervous after last night? Uh, I'm not sure if he gets nervous. You know, (laughs) turtles have hard shells. (laughs) Well, so I know that Indivisible Kentucky has uh, their sights on him in 2020. What are some of the things that you have planned? Well, we are uh, building a coalition of groups uh, throughout the state, um, and we'll be deciding uh, what to do moving forward on how to address different campaigns with billboards or you know, door-to-door canvassing, um, you know, but clearly there's going to be a primary for that race on the Democrat side anyway. Yeah. And is there a candidate that Indivisible Kentucky prefers at this point? There is not. There is not. I, I personally know uh, two of the candidates that have already declared um, to run and, um, you know, just coming off of a of a gubernatorial race, uh, I'm going to take my time and see where where this goes. And maybe after the holidays, I'll jump in. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you're allowed arrest, uh, considering how much work you did on this campaign. Uh, I want to say thank you for that and congratulations. Sharon Fleck is the chair of Indivisible Kentucky. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And that is it for this week's show. If you guys missed anything, if you want to get caught up on past shows, you can find all of that at indivisiblepodcast.org. You can also subscribe to the show there, too. If you would like to get in touch, and I would love it if you would, the email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Our associate producer, is Charlotte Gittleman. Thank you again to my guests Shasti Conrad, Yvonne Wallace-Fuentes, and Sharon Fleck. And special thanks to Lori Caldwell. As always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.